Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership, an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights. Gil and I are thrilled to be joined by Ash Fontana, the Managing Director at Zeta Venture Partners and author of the new book, The AI First Company. We'll be discussing how to define competitive advantage in the AI first century. Quick note on how this fireside chat will run. Gil will give a quick overview and background on Ash. Then we will have a Q&A discussion. And Gil, go ahead, take it away. Hey, Ash, thanks. It's, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. A bit about you. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny because I, whenever I would introduce a founder to you or list you as one of the people that I could introduce, I would say this is a guy who basically wrote the book on investing in AI companies, but that was the article. And now you've actually gone and written the actual book on AI. And I'm, so that uh, means I have to update my the way I introduce you or not. Very pricey interview. Uh, exactly. My algorithms are very well tuned. We actually do have a co-investment together in Crate, which was a, a deal that I did when I was a DFJ spree. You have an amazing track record as a VC and as an angel and an advisor. I'll just mention a few things. Kaggle, which was founded in 2010, raised $60 million, acquired by Google, was a really, really interesting company. And it might be interesting for you to just tell us a little bit about that and that thesis. But that was, if I remember right, that was the, like, the place where you could run a competition to solve an AI problem back when people were just starting to realize that, hey, maybe, maybe this is something that needs to be productized in some form. And the only way to do it then was with people. So mm-hmm. you sort of made it easy for, for mm-hmm. most of us to find who could solve these AI challenges for us. Uh, Tractable, which is a UK-based company backed by Insight, raised, I think, over like $150 million at this point, something like that. Yeah, raised, they've actually raised not that much considering where they're at. They've raised yeah. basically less than what they're earning and worth over a billion. Yeah, yeah, it's an amazing story. And one that I am embarrassed to say I passed on at the seed stage because I completely didn't get it. Lilt, backed by uh, Zeta at the seed stage, and then by Sequoia and Intel, a super interesting company, the localization space. You're an advisor to Numerai, which is a fascinating uh, crypto data science driven hedge fund thing that maybe if we have extra time, you can explain to us what that is. You're also an angel investor in Canva and a whole bunch of other cool things. And most recently you wrote a book, The AI First Company, which is kind of why we're here. It's called The AI First Company, How to Compete and Win with Artificial Intelligence. Because, you know, I don't want to help get this book out. Uh, can we just briefly just help you where they can find that book and why they should find that book? And then we'll... Yeah. So basically you can find it anywhere. If you like audiobook, get it on Amazon. If you like Kindle, get it there. If you want to walk into a bookstore, you should be able to find it in most bookstores or all the online bookstores, Barnes & Noble in the US and wherever. So you should be able to buy it anywhere. Why? Um, well, one really instrumental way to answer that question is if you want to get promoted. Basically, if you've got an idea for a way to make AI more prominent at a company you work at, then this is going to help you take that idea close to reality. Or if you're starting a company or running an existing company, want to just put the trimmings on your AI strategy. You know, you might not have one today. You might have a bit of one. You might be completely focused on AI, but there are all these unique challenges about either bringing AI into a big company or starting a company with AI at its core around hiring and pricing and policy, all sorts of challenges. And that's what I try to get through. 
Cool. So before we dive further into that, just a bit more about your, your own background and what you're doing now. So the first thing to say is that you are Australian, obviously. You spent many years in the Valley. Now you are sort of in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, you won't say where in Europe, but you're in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tried this pre-pandemic, but I, I would not tell you where I was in Europe because I was moving. I haven't been out to move as frequently during the pandemic, but explain to us why Europe and what you're seeing in Europe and how that relates to AI. Yeah, for sure. So I've been coming back and forth to the UK and Europe for about eight years. So got AngelList spun up here and then started making investments here. The very first investment I made for Zeta was in London, Intractable. And I've made a few more since then. And so I've been going back and forth for a while. And it just got to the point over two years ago, actually, like quite a bit before the pandemic, where in any given week, the most promising companies that I really wanted to meet and research and spend time with were in the UK or Europe. As in, if I looked at my calendar, more than half of them were video calls with the UK or Europe. And so I thought this is a bit funny, like I've got to just could just be there more permanently and actually just switch the balance a bit. And so we went to our investors, we were raising our third fund at the time and said, we're going to do this. We're going to just switch the center of gravity a little bit more and still have a team in SF, still have a team in New York, but really open up a front in London. That's my personal experience. Really ignoring that for a second. The fact is that As of two years ago, more machine learning research was published in Europe. There are more software developers in Europe and UK bundling them together than in the US. And the research institutions are much easier to access from a venture capital perspective in that there are less actual projects getting funded. So there are more projects, but less funding, and therefore there's a huge funding gap. And so I'm here to try to fill that. I'm here to try to back the most important companies. Now, I'm not saying anything about the general tech market or the general economy. All I'm saying is for what I do, which is find machine learning research and try to bring it into the real world, it is objectively the case that there's more of it to back here than anywhere else in the world. Cool. So it's not just forest fires and taxes and stuff like that. That's Um, very concerning too, but no, it's not just that. Probably your most well-known investment in Zimba mm-hmm. uh, that most mm-hmm. people wouldn't would know about. Yeah, you know, I know that in in some level, okay, that was just an angel investment. It wasn't mm-hmm. the investment for Zeta, but I did want to give you a chance to talk about it a little bit because Canva. At least when I first came across Canva, I wouldn't have said, "Oh, well, that's an AI company." Mm-hmm. And yet we've seen how companies like Wix, you know, Wix launched their AI site builder, which was actually like you know, I was skeptical, but it's actually pretty good. Yeah, I'm curious about Canva's journey from your perspective towards bringing AI more and more into the product. I'd love to hear your your take on that. So, so when you think about from a founder's point of view, you start a company that's not necessarily AI per se, and then it becomes more and more. Can you talk about how Canva has done that? Yeah, I'm really glad you bring this up because it's actually time that I am refocusing on this whole space of using AI to help people create stuff to communicate better. Because a couple of things have happened here. A lot of computer vision technology has got better and better. And a lot of design tools have got more and more commoditized. And a lot of people have had to learn how to communicate in new ways because we're not in the office as much. We're not in front of each other as much. We're promoting more on social media and online channels. So all of these things have sort of come together. And led to a huge opportunity, not just for Canva, but for a whole bunch of startups. A startup 
I really wanted to back in Europe, UIZARD, there are a whole bunch of companies out there, Runway ML, that are essentially helping people create things by automating more of what can be like quite a tedious process of designing something, whether it's cutting out little bits of images, adjusting levels in photos, making things fit things, figuring out what colors go with what. These are all things computers can do very well now. So I'm glad you bring this up because I'm really focused on this problem of using AI to help people design better and go through that process of designing something a little bit more efficiently. Now, Canva has tracked that. Canva had ideas about how to use AI from the very, very beginning, of course, but they had to go and do lots of other things. They had to go and collect an image library of millions of images. They had to see how people use the product, build all these templates and do lots and lots and lots of things. But today they're doing a lot. So they do a lot of the things I mentioned. They use AI to make the process of cutting up images so they fit into your template better, fit into your presentation better, cutting out the edges of like a lion's mane. So when you just put it on your presentation, it fits. Um, figuring out which colors, figuring out what template you should use for what purpose. Given your constraints, you're going to post some Instagram. Is it like a happy or a sad thing? All that sort of stuff. And also video editing. I mean, that's a huge opportunity. Anyone who's sat in a video editor's studio knows it can be really tedious. I used to do this for money, sort of for fun. And it's really, really tedious job. And Canva has got some really nice tools for that now as well. So they've got quite a significant team. I actually just gave a talk at Canva about AI in design. And there were hundreds of people at the talk uh, at the company. It's a really huge opportunity there. They're putting a lot of work into it. And it's already sort of in the background of the product every day. So when you yeah. describe Canva, it sounds like that's kind of hidden AI. The users mm. are not going, oh, wow, this is AI. Like they would mm. maybe, our companies, do you see an evolution from AI being front and center? Like, look, we have AI, but in some cases they didn't To We have AI and you don't even know it's there, but it's making your life much better. I think that is the evolution, right? It's just like software. We use a lot of software without realizing it. There are a lot of components of software, some AI enabled and some not that just make our lives so much better. A lot of the people will know this, but just to just emphasize it, there is so much AI going on right now as you and I speak and this whole group listens. So much AI helping with signal processing. Yeah, you have signal processing algorithms that were developed a long time ago that are very helpful and deterministic. There's a lot of learning going on in terms of blowing backgrounds, blocking out noises and this sort of stuff. There's so much going on as we talk right now. There's so much going on in the Google Docs that we collaborate on. We collaborated on before this. My math nemesis from high school actually built a lot of that, built some of the core algorithms, the core learning algorithms in Google Docs that essentially figure out when someone is trying to type over someone else and prevents it from happening, prevents a collision from happening. So that notion of invisible AI, it's not like, I think a novel notion is in like something that would be nice. It's actually the end goal. It's to make this stuff as invisible as po possible. It's to, to abstract as much as we can away so that we can be as uniquely human as we would like to be and our best place to be. So I think this is true of a lot of products and I think it's a good design paradigm, which is how do you make the AI visible? Or how do you make the prediction in place? Like, how do you put the prediction in a place where people can actually use it? It's one thing to get a prediction of how many sandwiches you need to make tomorrow, but it's another thing to get that prediction as you're filling out the order form for bread, right? And so that is 
it's not just about making it visible. It's about making it there or visible when you need it to be visible. So I could go on and on, but at the risk of being too abstract, I won't. But I'm really glad you brought up the notion of invisible AI because I want to be clear that I think that's the goal, not a nice to have. Awesome. What is an AI-first company? Mm. And can you give some current examples of AI-first companies that are winning today? Yeah. So I'll say two things, one annoying and one encouraging. An AI-first company is a company that puts AI first. But what does that mean? It means putting AI somewhere at the start of conversations about everything in your business, whether it's who are we going to hire? People. What are we going to charge for this pricing? Are we going to charge in such a way where we encourage usage and data collection? We incentivize contributions of data, or are we going to charge on some other basis? What laws do we have to care about and work around policy? What are we going to build product? Every conversation that you have at a company about any part of your strategy needs to involve AI. If you're going to have a shot at building the sort of competitive advantage, which I contend is the most powerful out there, data learning effects. Because if you don't start collecting the data, if you don't start managing it correctly, and if you don't start thinking about how to use that to build a better product for your customers, now, putting it first now, it's really hard to catch up later. You can't just like create the data out of nowhere later. So that's what an AI first company is. The encouraging part of my answer is, no, it's not the case that an AI first company has to use AI from day one. Any existing company can transform itself into an AI-first company to borrow a sort of annoying term, digital transformation. Like it's not like you have to start digital, be digital. You can be a media company that has printed newspapers for many years and turn all that into a digital format and then adapt really well like the New York Times and others have. And you don't have to have started as a company that makes robots, but you can automate little bits of your existing process in your factory that makes ski boots or whatever you make. And so an AI first company doesn't have to start that way. I should give some examples. Sorry. I'll put it in three buckets. Of the big tech companies, I'd say Google is the one that was AI from day one. Search algorithms are AIs. They collected data super deliberately to make everything better from day one. They gave away products for free. They still give away so much for free to reinforce that data learning effect that they have. So that's of the big tech companies. They're the, that's the best example of an AI first company. It's sort of boring to say that, but it's just absolutely true in my mind. Of the sort of less obvious tech companies, the ones that have transformed into AI first, I think Salesforce has done a really good job. It was collecting lots of data for years by, and putting all this stuff in, in the cloud by having your CRM in the cloud. It wasn't really using it. And then they went through quite a few acquisitions, transformed everything, transformed the ecosystem, gave incentives to contribute data gave incentives to people to build AIs on top of Salesforce data. And I think now they enable a lot of businesses to be AI first. And then of old line companies, a lot of them have done really well at incorporating AI into their products in ways that are probably small in terms of how much of the product suite they make up, but really powerful. A lot of MRN machines you buy these days from Philips, a very old company, has some AI in it, has some computer vision in it, has all sorts of stuff in it. So there are a heap of old line companies that have AI everywhere in their products. And, and I, I don't have to go through the obvious examples that have a lot of robots like Toyota and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think a lot of companies have meaningful AI in a very small part of their business. 
Let me ask you from a startup or a VC perspective. And, you know, one of the funny things about a VC is that you are a cheerleader for innovation in general. You, you try to attract all of that positive, optimistic energy to you in the form of all these startups. And then your job is to inject as much skepticism into those conversations as you can. To me, it almost sounds like when you think about the fact that this is clearly the smartest large companies, whether they're big tech or big corporates or whatever, that they're aware of this. This is not a, you know, the smartest people, these companies at the, at the leaders, this is not news to them, right? So I would actually imagine that in, in a lot of cases, this actually makes the startup's job harder, mm-hmm. right? Because the algorithms are sort of available. The talent is out there, right? The data you're going to start to generate, whether it's existing data, proprietary data, or novel data you're trying to generate so that you can run these algorithms in the first place. As a startup, you start with nothing, right? Whereas the incumbent that you're up against has all that stuff. They have years of it sometimes sitting in a warehouse somewhere that all they need to do is unlock, right? Does this actually make it tougher for startups in a lot of ways? It makes it easier and tougher. It does both, for sure. But mostly it makes it easier. Because, of, because I'm a crotchety old man, let's start with, the, with where it makes it tougher. Yeah, well, for sure. What, like a lot of incumbents can wake up tomorrow and use all the data, as you said, that just accidentally collected and luckily put somewhere in some database and build a really powerful system. Like a lot of the medical imaging companies are collecting images all day long. They have the system of record where everyone stores every single x-ray and they can just go and apply a lot of stuff off the shelf, a lot of open source computer vision models and whatnot, and build really good systems for detecting whether someone has broken their femur or their wrist or something. And that is so hard for a startup to do because there are basically two or three companies that have all those images and they have no leverage against them. So it's incredibly hard in some domains. And that's the point. Like in some areas, it is the case that there are incumbents that have a lot of data. Only they or one or two other companies have it. And they're savvy enough, attractive enough to people with certain skills and whatnot, have enough spare cash to experiment. And I wouldn't want to be competing against them. No way. Now, then it's just a question of degree. In a lot of industries where incumbents have all the data and none of the talent, where it's actually quite fragmented where the data exists. So there's a role for someone to be an aggregator. And I talk about what it means to like to have AI first aggregation as your strategy there. And then you get further and further where the data is super fragmented or doesn't exist at all and has to be collected. And then there's an opportunity for a startup to come in and collect it by offering incentives, forming a data coalition, even just synthesizing data from nothing, in which in some domains is what needs to be done to create a sufficiently powerful system. It's totally a spectrum and it's not just a one-dimensional spectrum. It's not just a line. It's not about fragmentation of data and where that sits. It's about skill and talent and ability to attract it and whatnot. And then it's about applications. Is there one application for this data? Is this data going to fit one type of model or many types of model with many different applications? So there's sort of lots of different considerations here in terms of figuring out, all right, what's my entry strategy? And am I entering a market that's going to be really hard or is it going to be really easy for me? The fact is it's a rising tide. There's so much AI needed if we are to have sufficient leverage over our environment to be able to eat well and not burn down the planet and whatever else in the meantime. We need more technology. We need more levers to help us get through the next century. And it's not the case that just a couple of companies can build it. Bit of a platitudinous comment, but slightly positive one to finish on. Well, 
Very cool. We're now going to be joined by Gleb, who is based in Estonia. Thank you very much. My name is Gleb. I'm pitch coach. And I have a question regarding, very, very silly question, definitions for one, defect, two, AI. Context here, two months ago, I was listening to a applied AI conference in Germany and early bird ventures, Atomico, some folks working there, a few other funds were talking about definitions of AI. And I simply want to really understand from a pitch coach perspective, founders and VCs, what's your working definition of those terms? Super silly question. I would love to hear your take. Thank you very much. Yeah. On the first one, yeah, there is a lot of confusion and like, frankly, it's because it's not a good term. Deep tech. I don't know. I honestly can't answer that one. I'll give you a more useful answer to the one that uh, I talk about all the time, which is AI. So I think the word artificial here is really important. AI is something that we're not. It's something that can operate in a way we can't more reliably, more quickly, more efficiently, lower cost, or more perceptively. And this is sort of self-reinforcing definition is in, if we define AI this way, we're going to focus on building things that can do things we can't. And we're not just going to focus on trying to emulate ourselves, which would arguably not have much point. And so to bring this down to more sort of practical examples, AIs can, for example, run a calculation over and over again and not get it wrong. They can run calculations of a larger numbers of variables than we can hold in our head. They can perceive things that are out of our immediate perception. So they can perceive things across millions of cameras all at once or millions of gas sensors or whatnot. So that's my working defini definition of AI. It's a form of intelligence that we don't have. Now, I'll just very quickly define what I mean by intelligence. For me, intelligence is your rate of learning. And so it's not just about calculating or perceiving, it's about calculating or perceiving so that you can learn something so that the next time you calculate or perceive something, it's going to be more accurate. That's what I mean. Beautiful. We're now going to be joined by Adam Pan, and he's a founder of Poly, and he's based in the UK. Hello. So my, my question is around, uh, you know, typically when you build a software company as a SaaS, you offer as an API, and it's pretty standard to your customers. With coming to AI, there's always a bit of customization based on the, you know, customer's data and all that. So typically you move as a company from the product point to the service element involved in it, right? So how do you think about not becoming a service company when you are building an AI company for an enterprise segment at stay as a product because you want to have that scaling effect of, of a product company? Yeah, I think it's about having a path, right? There's the sort of now, originally quite useful, but now platitudinous come in, do things that don't scale. There is the consideration that every customer is going to be slightly idiosyncratic in how they store data, how they manage data, and you need that data to feed your self-learning system. And every customer's reality is slightly different. It's We have a shared reality, like we all walk through the same world, we all have the same information available to us in certain situations, not in all situations, but we all have a different reality. I'm trying to achieve something that's probably different to what you're trying to achieve. One factory 
is trying to produce a good with certain characteristics, like it might be trying to produce a good that's waterproof and another factory is trying to pr produce a, a jacket that's windproof. And so they're going to do different testing and be optimizing for different qualities in the end product. And so what I'm getting at here is because every customer stores data differently, because every customer's reality or what they're optimizing for is slightly different, there are going to be differences in what they're seeking from you, what they're seeking from you in terms of automating something or predicting something. And so of course there are going to be differences. You just have to figure out, is there enough commonality between customers to allow you to over time earn a strong enough gross margin? And I get to this in the second last chapter of the book, the last bit of the second last chapter, where I talk about machine earning, which is how do you set up the right accounting metrics from day one to make sure you're properly accounting for the cost of producing a prediction, the data ETL costs, the data labeling costs, the research and development costs, and then attaching those to a customer. So on a unit basis, like on a per customer or a per product basis, that what you're doing is going to be profitable, firstly on a gross basis and then on a net basis. And for example, when entering a market, if you have this framework, you can go, all right, in this industry, there are 50 systems of record. There are 50 different types of databases people use. And we're actually not going to be able to capture our our SAM, our specific addressable market, unless we build those 50 data integrations. Okay, what's that going to cost us? That could cost you $50 million. It could take a really long time. That's not a good market for a startup to enter. So if you have this framework and you apply it, you can make better decisions about what to enter and what to build to your point so that you don't end up being in a situation where you're just time after time doing a one-off service for a customer to get their data or to label their data or to build them a model with custom features. So yeah, it's a big challenge. It's something that we need to be very cognizant of when forming the strategy for a startup. And But it's something around which you can have frameworks and um, apply metrics to make sure you don't get stuck in a situation where you're doing lots of unscalable and more importantly, unprofitable things. And I, I cover that quite extensively in the chapters in the book. Awesome. We're now going to be joined by Dror. He is the CEO of Test Story Technologies. Hey, Ash. Nice to meet you. One to ask, building on the previous question about deep tech, is there any other technologies that you see as a complementary fit to the AI world and vice versa that AI would complement them? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, essentially, it's all heading in the same direction, right? Which is, we're building different types of computers to deal with more types of calculations that we have to do. Quantum computers, tensor-based computers, lots of different types of computers, biologically inspired computers. And they will help us calculate different types of data through different types of algorithms at a given speed or power requirement or cost, other form of cost. And so a lot of the chip technologies are super complementary to AI. The data collection technologies are super complementary to AI. As in, if we're able to collect different types of images world, like we capture more of the light spectrum, for example, or if we're able to capture different types of information about gases in the atmosphere with higher fidelity, more cheaply, more completely blanket the globe with these sensors, 
we might be able to build a different understanding of our environment. So a lot of the sensing technologies are going to feed into our ability to intelligently learn about our reality, learn about our environment for the end purposes of like making better decisions every day. So a lot of the sense chip technologies, a lot of the sensing technologies, and then there's sort of levels below that. So for example, a different type of diagnostic, medical diagnostic is a sensing technology, really. Um, it's figuring out something that exists in your blood or in some biological substrate in your tissues. And then if you have that information from the diagnostic and you have that information across millions of people, you might learn something. So lots and lots of technologies around calculation and sensing are being developed all over the place that are very complementary to AI. If you just consider AI being the thing that gets the data and turns it into information that you can then learn from. Thank you. Welcome. I think your definition of AI as a learning system and that you can measure AI by the rate of learning, I think is very helpful. And, and I think it focuses the mind on the right way to think about this. I want to ask you about sort of mega trends. Is mm -hmm. AI just another name for what people are doing with software in general? In other words, is it just a question of degree where some people are just doing it badly, other people doing it better? But basically, anytime you're collecting data and using it to make decisions one way or another, you're building some version of an AI? Or is there something that comes after AI? Or is there some counter trend that we can talk about or are mm. resistant to it? Is there still a debate about whether this is the only direction of software or not? Mm. Yeah, so I think a lot of technology and a lot of software actually has no AI at all. And so I think what's missing from a lot of that software and technology is the very last step, which is the learning step. So yes, a lot of software collects data. CRMs collect data, ERPs collect data. Lots of software, human resources management systems, they all collect data. Now data is just ones and zeros, you can't really do anything with it. A lot of software also turns that data into information. So ETL software, software that just lets people click around and move things around, put things in spreadsheets, present it the right way, put it in a dashboard. Then you have information. You don't just have ones and zeros, but you've got like pie charts, you've got other things. And that's where most software stops in delivering information. So it's called information technology. And at that point, humans make decisions with the information. They figure out, okay, why are people leaving our company? It's because, oh, wow, we figured out from a system that collects data and surveys and then presents that data as information in graphs, we can see that a lot of people don't like their commute. And so that's why they're leaving our company and we need to move our office. But that decision is made by a human. Or I look at all the leads that some systems collected for me to sell to, and I have to decide who to call next. I have to decide how to pitch that customer. I have to decide how to write that email, what to put in that email. So that's when my software stops, collecting data and turning it into information. Then it's up to the human to make the decision, make the prediction about what email is gonna be opened more or what marketing campaign is gonna work best. What AI does is that last bit, right? It actually does the learning for us. And most software just doesn't do that. It, it could be that I'm, I'm hanging around futuristic software too much. So to me, mm. it's like everyone is going this direction. So yeah, but let's, let's, let's just, Play that on a little bit for me, like you obviously wrote a book, right? With a, with a point of view that this is where people should go. This is where we can go. This mm -hmm. is the way to unleash the full power of the data and the, co in, mm -hmm. and the compute that we have, right? They may be too embarrassed to raise their heads up, but is there a counter movement that says, no, don't trust AI. I can see this oh, on the yeah. fringes of some of what we look at. We're like, even a tool, for example, that you know about, 
that builds tooling for data scientists where they can actually automate a ton of the BNN building themselves. They're actually tuning that back because the data scientists themselves don't want auto <laughs> modeling, right? Because they don't want you to build a DNN for them. They want to pretend that they're doing it. So, okay, fine, right? Are you seeing an opposition to some of this? A hundred percent. And that's such a good example because I see this too, which is a lot of the resistance actually comes most from the people building these models because they can see just how much hand tuning is involved, just how much manual data labeling is involved. And they're very skeptical that it can be automated. And I spend most of my time these days in finding and backing tools for data scientists and machine learning engineers. And it's so hard to do research on these companies and figure out if people are going to buy these products because the people buying them are so skeptical that you can automate what they're doing. So I see that a lot too. But that's just an extreme example. Yeah, you see it in absolutely every industry from the sort of now a little bit prosaic and annoying and light out type arguments of, well, we don't want to adopt it because it's going to take up someone's job to the arguments that I think are really productive to have, which is we don't want to adopt it because we think that people should have a right to protecting their own data and it shouldn't be put into some big system. So there's sort of resistance that comes from that angle and the data privacy angle for sure to we don't want to adopt it because we can't regulate it to we don't want to adopt it because it's too risky. And that's where, you know, I think it is very, very healthy to have a lot of skepticism about adopting AI. And I talk about this too, which is you've really got to consider the shape of the payoff. And it is just the case that AI cannot work over certain data sets and learn over certain information such that it will be accurate enough that you can rely on it. And it's this weird mix of educating people about what the AI can actually do so that they rely on it just enough, but not too much. And the obvious examples are in the medical industry and um, in like very high risk or high consequence applications where there's probably not enough skepticism actually to go against your question, to be honest, at least on the side of stuff that's getting funders and on the side of like innovators I talk to. Frankly, I don't think a lot of them are skeptical enough about what the AI can do. They're too naive. And it's not until you put them in front of someone with a lot, like many, many years of experience in, in a problem domain, do they realize, oh, actually, we can't take account of that. So anyway, I see skepticism all over the place. A lot of it is really well-placed and a lot of it is really not. Yeah. And there's a whole other question about that, actual explainability and the coexistence of AI yeah. with people. And so, but I, I, I want to bring in uh, a founder named Vicky Knott, who's the CEO of Crux OCM, uh, one of our portfolio companies based in Canada. Vicky, take it away. Hi. Hi, Ash. I, I'm loving this because like we struggle all the time with, yeah, like calling ourselves AI. I think it's because we literally, we fit your definition to a T, but we're in critical infrastructure founders are chemical electrical engineers like what we do is predictive modeling control systems mm -hmm. which is by your definition ai because it's continually tuning itself and and, and seeking mm -hmm. that optimal solution right so so i'd love to hear your take on like you know you kind of touched on it a little bit but i still wanted to ask the question anyway like so we when we're meeting with our customers we will not call it ai we're just like no here's how it computes here's how we build the models it's always minimizing error for you and what we're doing is we're controlling critical infrastructure, such as like oil pipelines, on behalf of control room operators. 
So we won't use, we won't say AI or ML because we don't want them to think that it's something that we're not in control of. But then sometimes we'll be asked like, oh, well, do you use ML? And then we'll kind of dance around a little bit because we're like, well, and, you know, we'll use it for soft sensors or we'll use it for in these specific cases. But it's so interesting how it seems like in one part of the world, it's like, use these words, say these words. But then when you actually get into deep tech, I'm not comfortable using the words. I'm like, no, here's how it actually works. And and it's control systems, right? Like, I don't want to just use a blanket term. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what else you've seen in in those critical infrastructures for how folks handle that. So, sorry, is your question, how do you get around skepticism in the use of AI and critical infrastructure applications? Is that your question? No, no, the question is is more around the... um, like, I won't say those terms, like, in, in, in critical infrastructure. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, like, why that is. Like, I'm so hesitant, even talking to VCs, like, I won't use those terms because my customers don't trust them. So I won't use the yeah. terms. I'm just like, I'll like, no, it's control theory, right? Or, or no, it's predictive modeling. It's, right? Like, I'll use other terms. But based on your definition, those are all AI. I think this is more of a communication thing than anything. And it's just use the terms people understand. And focus on the value. And the most successful pitches are ones that focus on showing the customer what they're going to get out of using the technology. Like it's just a tool. It's not a solution often. Sometimes it's a complete solution. And you have to talk about things in terms of the ROI. And um, that's, you know, all throughout the book, which is just to focus on when you talk about this stuff, talk about it in terms of ROI. And you can talk about AI in terms of ROI. It's not something special. It's not something that's so completely different from anything else out there that the basic concept of what do I put into this and what do I get out of it doesn't apply. It totally does apply. To follow up on that, that totally makes sense. And like, that's totally how we approach it with customers. Do you think we could be hurting ourselves by not using a term AI when we talk to VCs? Maybe. It depends who you're talking to. If they know what they're talking about, if they have a strong background in the field, it's best to get right to what data are you collecting, what experiments are you running, and what results are you getting. If they don't have a background in the field, will you start at a higher rung on the ladder of abstraction? So it depend, depends how much they know. Okay. Okay. Because I haven't used it and I'm thinking from our talk that I should be using it more. So thank you. <laughs> I probably still wouldn't, to be honest. And again, focus on the value you're providing to your customers. Like people can work out where that value is coming from later, but if there's no value, there's no conversation. Cool. Let me ask you a little bit, Ash, about, you know, we chatted about this earlier, the, the sort of the Martin Casado thesis on, mm-hmm. on the challenges facing the, the profitability of AI first startups. He's got an argument that I think a lot of people have I've seen and you made about how you end up having lower gross margins because you're building these very complicated models that you sort of need to maintain for multiple customers. It's never really easy to bring what the model from one customer one to customer two. There's all these thorny edge cases within customers. There are customers who themselves become edge cases. It can be hard for you to predict a priori whether your model is going to work perfectly and at what level for which customer, unless they're exactly identical. And then ultimately weaker defensive modes because of the commoditization of these AI models. And I don't think, I don't think Martin is arguing that people shouldn't use AI or that this is a, a dumb thing to do, but I think he's sort of highlighting some of these challenges for startups. I'd love it if you could sort of react to that. And you've thought a lot about this. A, is he right or wrong? And what should people do about this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fairly general statement that 
you know, you want to try to build a company that is scalable and the sign of scalability is that you have high gross margins because the incremental cost of serving an incremental customer is lower and lower. It gets marginally lower over time. So I think it's just a general point. I think it's an article that could have easily be written in the software era 20 years ago and could easily and was easily written today. And that is, sure, you can go and make bespoke software for all sorts of customers. A lot of people did that. A lot of people made, made a lot of money doing that. And some people made even more money by making one piece of software that served many customers, like Viva, in the one industry. And some people made even more money by making one piece of software that served lots and lots of customers and lots of lots of industries, like Salesforce. But there are a lot of people that build custom CRMs for one company. And they just knew they'd just do that on services basis. So that happened in the software industry and that's happening in the AI industry. And so it's just sort of like, okay, so what? And well, I think the so what is... Back on that a little bit though. I think what he's arguing though, right? I think what he's arguing is that AI, the, the shift to the era of AI makes software fundamentally less profitable a business in general for many companies because mm. of the false idea they have that now that we have the capability to reason about all this data and learn from it and con draw conclusions from it, that's going to be efficient. And you say, well, that's actually intrinsically less efficient than if all you're doing is storing a bunch of telephone numbers in a database. That definitely scales across because CRMs are all the same, but reasoning about my sales process versus your sales process, that could lead us down an infinite rabbit hole of yeah. models, right? That I think he's pointing out a lot of founders are not aware of this. They think, oh, I've got this magic machine I built for customer one. It does nothing for customer two unless you tweak it for several weeks. So it's intrinsically less efficient if you assume it's all manual. But the reality is, and you know this because you back companies that are automating so much of the process of doing data science and machine learning, is that it's not intrinsically all manual. We're getting better and better at automating more and more of the steps in the process of building an intelligent system, like data cleaning, like data labeling, like data consolidation, like model building, model monitoring, etc. And Yes, it was true at the start of the AI first era, which wasn't very long ago, it was a couple of years ago, just as it was true as at the start of the software era, that there were really high upfront costs. So the software era, you couldn't just get someone else's computing infrastructure and throw an application onto it. You didn't have platforms as a service. You had to build it all yourself. And so you needed 5 to $10 million to get started. And yes, at the start of the AI era, you couldn't just get a pre-trained model and throw a bunch of data into it and then slap a dashboard on top of it or an interface on top of it and sell it to a customer as an AI first product. You had to build all of that yourself and you needed $5 million to get started. It is the case as we abstract away a lot of these steps in building an AI, as in we'll make that easier for people to do that, we are able to deliver this software, build and deliver this software more cheaply. And so, I think it's just like a point in time observation and it's not a conclusion yeah. and it's certainly not a dynamic model you can use to approach how to build a company. The observation today, not long at all after that article was written, is that a whole bunch of the stuff they write about is already significantly more automated than it was. And the dynamic framework you can use is like what I have in the book under machine learning, which is like, all right, 
let's actually measure the costs of delivering this to a customer and figure out if it's profitable or not. The article is just a dead end because it just says it's expensive. Okay. And so what? The opportunity is to make it cheap. Wait, it was a useful warning sign in a point of time. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good summary. I think what you're pointing out is that times have changed and the tools are there. So let me ask you what I think might be the follow-on question, Mm. which, you know, is doesn't that mean that when a founder says to me, for example, I have this amazing team of data scientists and we've got these great algorithms and we've got, we can look what we can do with this data set. That's my moat. Mm. I, I tend to get turned off by that. I'm like, I, I have mm. a very hard time believing that that's the moat that you think it is, right? Mm. What is your take on that? Where, is the, where are the moats for these kind of companies? Yeah, great question. Because this is getting to the so what. And that is, it's a spectrum, right? As in, in some verticals, what that founder is generally pitching, actually, I think is true, which is no one else has collected the data. No one else has bothered to figure out what needs to be automated and no one else has built the models. So we can give like a super prosaic, like narrow example of, and I saw a company doing this recently, and I think they'll be very successful, which is they're optimizing the use of a bioreactor, like something you put a whole bunch of stuff in and then like grow a bunch of stuff in for 24 hours. And then you take that out and put it in a drug, like you're growing cultures and stuff. And these are really expensive machines and you want them running 24 seven and you don't want them to break down because you want to be utilizing them all the time because you spent so much on them. And they are collecting all the data from these machines and optimizing the use of them basically. And it is the case that that's worth a lot of money to a couple of pharmaceutical companies out there. And if they're the only company that does it, and it seems like so far, they're the only company with the right mix of access to data, access to talent, models that are working, access to customers. They're the only company that does that. They could be a really valuable company. They could command tens of millions of dollars from each customer, probably a couple of dozen customers, could be a couple of hundred million dollar business. Now, if you think about something a little bit less general than that, like getting all the images out of MRI machines, I'd find it really hard to believe that story, which is we've got all the images out of MRI machines and we're going to be able to detect everything because you don't have leverage over, the, as I said, the source of that data. So many different problems there. You're going to have to do a different model for each body part and each condition, blah, blah, blah. And every data set is going to be different. I, that's, that's not something I believe. So I, w- I was going to ask you, I didn't want to ask you that the question may be too annoying, but I was going to ask you, what do you think of the statement data is the new oil? And I think you're saying that sometimes, right? I think that's what you're saying. I mean, maybe sometimes, but basically never. And I approached this head on in the first chapter of the book, which is, and this is the reason I wrote this book. Because what AI gives you is a new type of competitive advantage and no one has the vocabulary to describe it and no one has the metrics to measure it. And what that competitive advantage is called is a data learning effect and it involves a critical mass of data. You do need a certain scale of data. In some industries, that's a huge amount of data and for some industries or for some problems, it's not a lot of data. And you do need a way to turn that data into information and you do need a way to learn over that information like a machine learning model. I'm not going to go in and like properly describe uh, or define a DLE right now. If it was easy to do in 30 seconds, I would have done it, just written an article rather than written a book. But that's the point. Like 
data is not the new oil. It's just a little bit of the whole puzzle. And it's a little part of the challenge of building a super defensible business. It's an important part. It's a crucial part. It's a precursor, but it's just a part. And you need a lot of the other things as well. Great way to frame that. We're going to be joined again by Gleb from Estonia. Thank you very much. This is super stimulating, a super stimulating conversation. One thing I want to combine here is bring back the conversation a little bit about the data scientists being skeptical about automating some of their work, but then put that into perspective of this competitive edge that you're talking about just now and apply this to your job, essentially, or at least to the investment professional, the VC and so forth. And so in 2020, I've been reading a paper published by a researcher in the, in the field of VC, and he informally interviewed roughly 63 VCs, and he was kind of asking them uh, about their attitudes in regards to automating through machine learning tools some of the deal screening processes. And so what turned out of that, that they were super skeptical in many ways, and one of those came down to this automation control trade-off and this mi- mistrust in the black box mod. And so like when I'm read out of it, there's this concern or hesitation to adopt it. So again, it echoes what you were talking about seemingly about the data scientists, but you're also talking about now the competitive edge. And I would love to see your perspective because I think you were, you're massively successful in syndication, angel lists, and all those tools. And I just want to hear your take. And obviously Angular uh, Ventures and, and so forth and all of that, I would love to hear your take on this, specifically in the domain of investments. Hopefully I'm clear. If not, let me know. So you're asking how can we apply AI to make better investments, is that right? Oh, that's a bit of a reduced version of it. So let me, <laughs> yeah. um, VCs based on this paper, it seems we're skeptical of, of using yeah. ML tools to screen deals. Yeah. Would then in this context, you use ML screening tools. Do you think it's feasible? Do you think it's a good idea? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. how come they're so skeptical? Hopefully I'm clear, but yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's clear. I'm glad you focused it in on screening because on that particular question, I, I agree with most of the survey respondents, I guess, in that I don't think it's very useful for screening at all. Look, I was at AngelList. We had the best data on companies that you could get. We had all the internal metrics and everything. And the one thing that was most predictive of a seed stage startup success was who invested in the seed round. That was it. You could look at all sorts of traction metrics and whatever else, because the reality is, and it goes back to a lot of what we were saying, Every company's different. Every company has a North Star metric. Every company's trying to provide different value to its customer set. And there's no one model that can help you figure out if it's providing that value to a sufficient degree where it's going to be a valuable company. Every company is in a different industry. It's just like a solution space that's the size of the universe. So that's not a useful way to apply machine learning, to screen companies, um, to figure out if they're good companies. However, That said, and just sort of extending a bit beyond your question, I think machine learning is very useful in figuring out who to even talk to, as in doing network analysis and figuring out who's connecting with who, what teams are being formed, doing analysis on um, what investors are investing in what areas and where the follow-on funding is because companies need a lot of money to go from zero to one. And so I think it's useful in some parts of the investment process and I don't just think it is like we, I use it a lot in lots of parts of our investment process and spend a lot of money on data and building systems to do that, but I don't use it to screen companies. Awesome. 
Uh, so we're running out of time. So I'll ask only one or two more questions. Mm-hmm. For an AI-first company startup, mm-hmm. um, do the co-founders need to be AI experienced from your point of view or can they hire for the role? Yeah. So typically the companies I find are 50-50. Someone with a lot of experience in the domain understands the problem, has a good idea of like how to make a prediction around a certain industrial problem, and then someone who can build that someone who can talk to the customers and get the data and understand what they're trying to solve and another person to help build the model that will solve it. So that's typically the case with sort of vertical applications and machine learning to a specific industrial problem. Obviously for, well not obviously, for data science and machine learning tools, the teams are mostly data scientists and machine learning engineers because the problem they're solving is their own problem. And so, yeah, you see a really good mix of teams. It just depends on the problem you're solving. Brilliant. So AI usually means transferring tasks from human to machines. Mm-hmm. What is the MVP in this context? What do you say? Mm. Really, really good question. And this goes to the concept of lean AI, which is a whole chapter in the book. And that is, firstly, of course, you got to understand what a customer's problem is. Now, an MVP means defining the model features like what is going to maybe be predictive? Is it the case that every time a bottle cap is one millimeter too big, it won't fit? Or is it two millimeters? Or every time it's tempered at 98 degrees, it fails the quality test. But when it's tempered at 120 degrees, it passes. So you sort of have an idea of that if you've worked in this bottle cap factory for a long time. And um, figuring out the model features then testing it, trying to generate that prediction. All right, let's use the data we've got from the past and see if the model we've developed based on what we thought is predictive actually did predict it well. Then you show a report to someone, your customer and say, look, we got this right to like 80% accuracy. Is that meaningful enough for you to make a difference? For example, if knowing with 80% accuracy ahead of time, if something is going to not pass the test, the quality test, is that going to help you deliver a better product? Is that going to help you reduce failures? Is that going to help you reduce the cost of production or something? And so you get that feedback, then you go and collect more data based on what their requirements are. Does it need to be more accurate? Does it need to be more reliable or whatnot? You retrain it and you go again. So the point is the MVP is actually what I call a prediction usability threshold, a degree of accuracy where someone's ready to rely on it. Cool. Ash, thank you so much. I know you have a hard stop, so we'll cut yeah. in here, but it looks like we could have gone on for a, you know, a bit longer. Okay. And, and I guess that's a good reason to read the book. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you so much to everyone for the questions. Please do let me know of any feedback on the book, any questions you have or a result of it. I've got a thick skin, easy to find, Ash Fontana, Gmail, Twitter, LinkedIn. Let me know and I'd be more than happy to help out anyone in the Angular community with anything at all.